What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze, discuss, and disseminate all things pertaining to our popular storytelling and how they've been informed by history, mythology, and philosophy. I don't know if you can tell, dear Midnight Myth listeners, but I am so very excited to be here for another Midnight Myth episode. This week, we are continuing a series that we started pre-Avengers Endgame release, where we were taking Marvel main Avenger characters and doing a character case study. This week, we're going to be tackling everyone's favorite green gamma rage infused monster of a hero, Bruce Banner, the incredible motherfucking Hulk. Smash. Yes. Throw down, Derek. I'm very excited to be here as well. Uh, and I, I, I'd i say you'd like me when I'm excited. You probably wouldn't like me when I'm angry, but I'm in a good place right now for this uh, Incredible Hulk episode, and I'm very stoked. So same thing goes for our other character case studies. We are going to focus primarily on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we're going to be talking about that Hulk. We're going to have no holds barred, completely spoiled conversations about the MCU movies. So if there's an MCU movie that the Hulk is in that you haven't seen yet, we're probably going to be talking about it and we're probably going to be spoiling it. Spoiler wall is up. Uh, Similar to our other episodes around MCU character case studies, I did a lot of digging into some of the more um, popular Hulk comics, some of the top ranked Hulk comics, which has been fucking spectacular, by the way. You know, I had no idea there are so many great individual Hulk stories. Shame on me for not knowing that. And uh, just really fantastic work, Marvel. And it makes me think there's so much more amazing source material for the Marvel studios to mine for the MCU. It's just a, it's a great time to be alive. It is a great time to be alive. So yes, just like you laid out, most of this is going to pertain to the MCU Hulk primarily, but we may bring in some uh, facts and figures from the comics and other sources if necessary. Uh, But you don't need to be super caught up on any of the comics or the 1970s TV show or the Ang Lee movie or any of that to enjoy this episode. 
Yeah, you just have to know the basics. Hulk is Dr. Bruce Banner. He experiments on himself with gamma radiation. And when he gets angry, he turns into a gigantic creature called the Hulk, who has super strength and is pretty much invincible and is by far the strongest character in the MCU for just raw physical strength. Awesome. So before we get too hopped up on gamma rays, just to clear a little bit of housekeeping out of the way, uh, if you want to get involved or get engaged with a conversation that we are having here on The Midnight Myth, please follow us on social media, especially on Twitter. We are at The Midnight Myth on Twitter, and we are constantly there waiting to hear from you and would love to uh, answer any questions or field any suggestions that you have for episodes to do in the future. We're also on Facebook and we're on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com, for tons of extra content there, including blogs. We just posted a two-part blog uh, expanding on some of the theories that we put forth in our never-ending story episode, and we have had an amazing conversation online already about what that means for the movie, because there is just so much to mine from that particular uh, story tradition. So definitely head over to the website to check out the blog and let us know what you want to hear. You can also on that website, find a link to shop, get some merch, get some Midnight Myth merch, some t-shirts, some mugs, some totes, and some sweatshirts. We have all kinds of stuff for you. And you can also find a link to our Patreon. Patreon is where you can support us. So we make this podcast for free and we would do it for free for the rest of our lives. But it really helps if we have supporters who can help us recoup some of the costs that we put into web hosting, equipment, uh, and all kinds of other marketing fees that we have for this podcast to get out there. So you can support us for as little as $1 a month. Uh, And if you support at the $5 level a month or higher, you'll actually get a bonus boomerangerang episode every month. And the next bonus boomerangerang is going up in a matter of hours. So definitely get uh, subscribed and get your bonus content. We would love to have you as one of our supporters there on Patreon. And one last point before we jump into this content, uh, Steve and I, fellow travelers on the path of the beam, yes, are near complete with Wizard and Glass, and we are gearing up for our final conversation on that particular book. So there is also the Wheel of Ka, the podcast dedicated to discussion and analysis around Stephen King's epic the Dark Tower. That's amazing. Gosh, there is so much going on here at The Midnight Myth. Also, if you're a subscriber, you've noticed that we're publishing our back catalog once a week. So stay tuned. If you're not subscribed yet, make sure you hit that subscribe button so that you get new episodes in your feed every week. We're going week by week with our older episodes, and it's a lot of fun to go back to uh, how we started and how we got our start and think about how far we've come. All right, so let's roll up our sleeves. Thank you, yes. And let's start talking pod smash. All things Hulk. All things the Incredible Hulk. I uh, I gotta say, in preparation and in starting for the Hulk podcast, there was a part of me that I'm like, you know, we kind of did the big three. Yeah. We did Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor. There's only been one solo Hulk movie. It wasn't very good. Most of us probably haven't even seen it. And if we saw it, it was a little forgettable. And that's the one with Edward Norton that came out, if I remember, shortly after the first Iron Man. And I'm like, you know, I just don't know if there's enough material in the Incredible Hulk, in particular the MCU Incredible Hulk, to fill an entire Midnight Myth episode. 
friends of the pod, I was wrong. <laughs> There's so much that we can talk about with Hulk. So we all know the basic story, green rage monster. He helps defeat the Chitari. He helps defeat Ultron. He helps defeat Thanos. He wields the uh, makeshift infinity gauntlet and undoes the snap. He has a romantic affair more teased than actually actualized with black widow. We love the Hulk. So I'd like to go back to an original thesis I had at the start of the MCU. Great. If you've listened to our other ones, you will know where I'm headed. And the idea is that the MCU, the main heroes have antecedents in Greek heroes. And in one of the clearest examples is the, way that the Hulk represents, mimics, and echoes from the famous Greek hero Heracles. I'm sorry, do you mean Hercules? No, I mean the Greek hero Heracles. Great. And in case you don't know, I'm being very specific here. In Greek, it is Heracles. In um, Latin, it is Hercules. So to the Romans, they worshipped the demigod or god Hercules. The Greeks did it with Heracles. And since it is from the yoke of the Roman civilization that modernity was born, we know him primarily as Hercules. But if you're an ancient Greek, you would never know him by that name. Funny thing, that wasn't the name that Hercules was born with. He So Hercules is a very interesting hero, and he does a lot, and we could do it in entire Hercules theme podcast. In fact, our Midnight Myth Time Machine from last week, we discussed Hercules and his strange conception and the reason that he went on his 12 labors. So we have talked about him before, but in a very different context. Go on. I'm sorry. But essentially what drives Hercules to do his greatest works is that Uh, Hera, the wife of Zeus, the queen of the Olympians, is really pissed off that her husband slept with this mortal, and now her husband had another illegitimate child. So she uses her divine influence to curse, torture, and put Hercules through as many different trials and also drives him mad. The name Hercules is of Hera, of the influence of Hera on Hercules is by we get his name. Hercules was incredibly foundational to both the Greeks and the Romans. Many of the ancient Greek city-states or the polises claimed direct lineage to Hercules as their founder. Um, One that I think you would probably all know of, Midnight Myth listeners, is Sparta. In fact, the entire Spartan way of life, which was essentially a slave city that did nothing but train warriors, was inspired directly by Hercules and wanting to be more Herculean. There is what we now call the Strait of Gibraltar, the the little space between Spain and uh, North Africa. In the ancient world, was called the Pillars of Hercules because it was believed that Hercules smashed the ground and caused that strait with his raw strength. Hercules was also identified in both a cult, a hero cult, and a deity cult. This is a little difficult to wrap our minds around, but Hercules was worshipped both as a god and as a hero, and he's the only Greek hero that we can say that of. So if you wanted to do a sacrifice to Achilles, you would go to Achilles' tomb and you would lay a sacrifice to Achilles in the underworld. Well, if you wanted to do a sacrifice to Heracles or Hercules, you could worship him as a god in Olympus, 
Or you could worship his deeds as a man in the underworld. He is both God and man at the same time. So he gets the closest in the Greek pantheon to what we would consider like a demigod today. Well, sound like anyone else that gets worshipped, both God and man. Absolutely. That gets worshipped today. You know, so why I bring this up. Oh, another point too. Hercules is also represented very much in all things masculine. And in the Roman world, the most masculine thing a man could do was be a gladiator. So Hercules is also associated with gladiators and several Roman emperors, including Emperor Commodus, who you might know from the movie Gladiator, Joaquin were Phoenix, obsessed yeah. with Hercules. Yeah. And Joaquin Phoenix, or pardon me, Commodus, was obsessed with gladiatorial combat and would dress up like Hercules and enter into the arena and just murder slaves so that he can be more like Hercules. Yeah, Commodus was not a good dude. No, no definitely not. So what does this have to do with Hulk, if anything? Well, Hulk is very similar to Hercules. One, he is the strongest in terms of just pure physical strength of all of the Avengers. Hercules is the strongest of the Greek demigods. But furthermore, Hercules is prone to fits of rage and madness. And in said fits and rage of madness, Hercules would damage and hurt innocent people, usually. And then Hercules would have to atone for hurting the innocent people. This is a direct parable to the Hulk storyline. He transforms into the Hulk. He can barely control himself. He does a lot of damage. And then when he's back at Bruce Banner, he has to atone for this. We see this symbolically in Age of Ultron after the Scarlet Witch messes with the Hulk's mind and he destroys a city. And we see him in the carrier jet with a blanket, like a Blanket that you would give to someone who just got out of like a major terrible trauma, like a plane crash, listening to classical music, sitting there tense. Um, that is very Herculean in the way that we see it. So I think we can understand the Hulk as in part inspired by the legacy of Hercules. And unlike the ancient world, we no longer admire brute strength as the greatest attribute of manliness. Hence, Hulk is not considered the greatest of the Avengers. That title is obviously for Captain America, unless you're Team Iron Man, in which get out of my podcast studio. Absolutely. So I, I really... I really appreciate that you brought this up. And I think there's a lot to explore in the facets of the relationship between Hercules and the Hulk. But one of the things that you mentioned was Hercules being worshiped as a God and a hero. So a dual nature is inherently part of who he is. And dual nature is what we think of when we think of the incredible Hulk and Bruce Banner. But that is what keeps the Hulk from being a truly quote unquote great Avenger. He may be the strongest. He also may be the smartest, but those two, those two opposing sides of this dual nature are not unified. Uh, and one has to exert power over the other. And that keeps this person from having a, a, you know, a unified sense of self like Captain America or even like Iron Man or Thor. Uh, just a couple of fun facts that I wanted to throw out here with relationship to Hercules, because while I think it's very clear in terms of the themes and the similar uh, mythological beats, even the comic book creators 
I think are engaging with this in a certain way. So a couple of fun facts to throw out. There is a myth about Hercules on his adventures where he once has to wrestle with Thanatos, the embodiment of death uh, in Greek mythology as a favor to one of his friends. And we have previously talked about Thanatos as a parallel for Thanos in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as the embodiment of death or the server of death. Uh, So there's a, a quick parallel there because Thanos totally beats up the Hulk in uh, Infinity War. And there's also a character in the Marvel comics named Hercules. And he's called, in some some comics, the Incredible Hercules. And the reason he's called that is because after Planet Hulk, as they were doing a new run of solo comics about the Hulk, they sort of changed their minds about who the uh, hero was going to be to keep up continuity. So they changed an Incredible Hulk comic into an Incredible Hercules comic. So he's running the same uh, sort of story beats here. And the last one is just a silly coincidence here, but Lou Ferrigno, who is most famous for playing the Hulk, not Bruce Banner, not uh, Banner in the 70s TV show, but once he transforms, he the notorious bodybuilder Lou Ferrigno was the green guy in the purple shorts. The next thing he did after the Hulk was play Hercules in uh, in a 1980s movie about Hercules fighting a bunch of robots. So I think the parallels there are very clear and have been uh, alluded to or hinted to on numerous levels. And I think we're looking at uh, a, a sort of many-fold uh, relationship between them. There is the brute strength. There's the dual nature. There are the dissociative episodes where uh, you know the the strong person ends up. Uh, damaging his own loved ones. You know, he wakes up from a fit of madness uh, where he's been driven mad by Hera and realizes he's slain his entire family and has to seek penance for that. But then who also goes on to have a legacy where he is worshipped by gladiators. And that feels so cogent to the Hulk who we pick up with on Sakaar as the champion, as a gladiator, yeah, as a gladiator, as a, and a a decidedly Romanized gladiator, absolutely wearing a Roman warrior headdress, holding more primitive Roman style weapons, yeah, in a Roman fight to the death for an emperor who presides over these gladiatorial games. Yeah, um, I read in preparation for this the entire Planet Hulk comic run, which uh, friends out there listening, if you like comics and haven't read it, do yourself a favor, uh, get a Marvel Unlimited subscription and read that because it is not only is the artwork phenomenal, the writing is phenomenal, the story is phenomenal. And it is very much the story of the Roman story of Spartacus Hulkized. And if you don't know the story of Spartacus, this is grounded in real history. Spartacus was a um, Roman slave turned gladiator who ran a gladiatory gladiator revolt and actually won a battle against a Roman army before the revolt was eventually put down. And planet Hulk is Hulk crashing on an alien planet getting enslaved, becoming a gladiator, becoming the best gladiator, leading a revolt, and he topples an evil empire, and he gets to rule planet Hulk only for three days. But that the story there is very much the same as Spartacus. Another connection that we have to the ancient roots of this 
of this uh, character, the Incredible Hulk. And I guess, you know, the next thing I'd like to say in terms of the Hercules Hulk parable is the uh, so why does it matter? And okay, so he's strong like Hercules, he's complicated like Hercules, and he gets worshipped like Hercules from time to time, and other times he gets scrutinized like Hercules. Why does that matter? And I think we've said this before in reference to superhero and superhero mythology, but I think it's worth revisiting. Heroes are important culturally because A, they can bind people together that weren't necessarily bound together. So the act of us all seeing, you know, the entire country essentially seeing Marvel's Endgame is a communal aspect that we can all share. It binds us together culturally as a people. So it matters in that way. One. Two, heroes are often both a reflection of and an aspiration to our culture. If Hulk is a reflection of an aspiration to our culture, what does it say about America that we have a Hulk in our most popular story franchise? And I think the answer to that is twofold. One, we see a combination of both intelligence and raw physical strength that I think most of us, especially American males, will say, yeah, I want to be the smartest in the room. And I also want to be the physically strongest in the room. So in that way, he represents a version of masculinity that um, has a balance between its toxic rage smash and like, I also want to build, create and think. So I think there's that representation of that. And two, it also represents that in that same version of masculinity, there is a green toxic underbelly that even if we are the smartest in the room, if we don't reconcile with the Hulk within us, we just become dumb, smashing monsters who can't distinguish friend from foe. And that to me is the uh, sort of cautionary tale. So we aspire to be Hulk-like, but only to a point. We don't want to become monsters. And that is the, I think the, the reason the Hulk a works so well. And I mean, you got to give credit to the writers and to Mark Ruffalo for that. But I think B that is the cultural soup in which we congeal around this amazing character. Absolutely. There is an aspirational quality and there is a, a sense of sort of wish fulfillment and escapism when we watch the Hulk smash our enemies uh, and we wish we could do the same, but there is so much pity wrapped up in this character too. We feel so much pity for him. And there are times when we feel that for other characters in the MCU, like Thor. We definitely pity Thor when he descends into uh, sort of the depths of inability to act because he is so ashamed of his failure. We, uh, we pity Iron Man when he loses his suit and is... Uh, completely without any uh, any strength in an unknown land, but we constantly feel a sense of sorrow and a, a, an incredible tension when it comes to the Hulk and Bruce Banner, because we know that the act of letting the Hulk loose to wail on your enemies is damaging to Bruce Banner. We know that the Hulk is something that uh, has been birthed out of 
a fractured self, a fractured identity in Banner. And we know that it harms him and we know that it causes him a great deal of distress and guilt. So it's a very interesting thing to watch uh, and to invest in. So I think you're right about a lot of those um, sort of parallels to mythology, but how complicated our relationship is in terms of the emotions to this character. I totally agree. There's a, a line that Black Widow has in Age of Ultron where she's talking to Bruce Banner and she goes, and here's a guy trying to avoid the fight because he knows he'll win. Absolutely. Yeah. And of all of the superheroes that we have in the Avengers, here is the one who doesn't want the power. Here's the one who would rather be a scientist. Here's a one that reluctantly brings the Hulk out and sometimes must be forced to bring the Hulk out because he doesn't want the Hulk to be there. And then when the Hulk takes full control, it pushes away Bruce Banner completely for an entire year. And Hulk is running amok in a gladiator style combat on an alien planet. There is a, a, a sense of disharmony and disunity in that character that is worthy of our pity and that is so fundamentally tragic in a different way from the other heroes that we see in the Avengers that makes him so uniquely human. I have the power. If I wanted to, I could smash the moon in half with my bare hands. My God, don't ever let me use that power. That is a conundrum that none of the other heroes face. Absolutely. So I want to uh, transition from the sort of Greek mythological concepts and into some other literary influences on this character that have actually been cited by Stan Lee, one of the co-creators of the Hulk. Uh, just to throw credit where credit is due, Stan Lee was the concept creator and Jack Kirby was the artist who created the Hulk. Um, but Stan Lee, in interviews, has referenced uh, a few literary characters who inform the creation of the Incredible Hulk, uh, and two in particular that I'm going to go into tonight. And those are going to be Frankenstein's monster from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So yet you're right. We're going to the 19th century, the Gothic novel, my friggin' wheelhouse. It's funny how, when we do these, I'm always going back to ancient Greece and Rome and you're always going back to the 19th century. And like, I love mythology more than anybody, but if we can get Gothic on this podcast, I'm going to take us there. Let's do it. So, um, Yes, yeah, Stanley has literally said, I threw in, you know, Frankenstein's monster and I threw in some Jekyll and Hyde as well as Quasimodo from The Hunchback of Notre Dame and even the golem from Jewish mythology, who we actually talked about with relation to Iron Man. So definitely check out that episode if you want to know more about the golem. Stanley's quote where he talks about uh, how Frankenstein informed the character says, quote, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for the Frankenstein monster. No one could ever convince me that he was the bad guy. He never wanted to hurt anyone. He merely groped his torturous way through a second life, trying to defend himself, trying to come to terms with those who sought to destroy him, end quote. Does that feel like someone we know? Doesn't that feel so potent and so painful and so indicative of the tragedy of Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk. So Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was written around 1818 when Mary Shelley was 
a teenager. She was like 16 years old when this book was published. She was a genius. I did not know that. Yeah, she's one of the great and most important writers of of the entire 19th century and I just yeah, I have she, nothing but amazing things to say about her. She wrote Frankenstein at the age of 16. Yeah. Holy mother of pearl, that's amazing. And most Go people, Mary Shelley. Yeah. And most people know the story or know the general beats of the story, but there are a few things that I think we tend to leave out. Obviously, a lot of us have the misconception when we say Frankenstein, we think of the monster or we think of the creature, but Frankenstein himself was the doctor uh, or was the young man who created the creature. And Victor Frankenstein was 19 years old when he built his creation. And he built his creation because he wanted to do something good. Victor Frankenstein said, I want to create a new race of people. I feel pain, I feel tragedy because I lost my mother and I don't want anyone to feel this anymore. I wanna find a way to escape death and I wanna build a new race of people who can live forever. I'm going to build something beautiful. And then he built something and that thing woke up and he rejected it. He said, no, I don't want you, I want you to go away. And that thing, that creature, turned his pain into violence. And we see the story from both of their sides in the novel. So we see the story of Victor Frankenstein, who was ashamed of what he created out of hubris, who was ashamed that he thought he could create life and ended up creating a monster and sees this monster wreaking havoc and hurting the people that he loves the most. And then we see the story from the monster's perspective, from the creature's perspective. He doesn't even have a name. He's just called the creature. Everyone he comes close to rejects him because they can't stand the sight of him. And so he turns that into violence. He hurts people. And then he turns against his maker because there's one man responsible for the pain that he feels. And that pain is a a total rejection and a total feeling of not having a place in the world. And all he wants, all this monster wants, is to live in peace and to be left alone and to love and to be loved. But he's ugly, he's brutish, he's hulking, and he cannot find that love without asking Victor Frankenstein to create another being to be with him. It's a horribly tragic story. And I think the parallels to... Uh, Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk are pretty evident in the relationship between Victor Frankenstein and his monster. And that misconception about uh, about the, the name Frankenstein indicates something to us that I think is important here. That Frankenstein and the monster are one. One is the creator and one is the creation, but they are both wrestling with an inner sense of total insecurity and lack of control. They're both wrestling with a sense of vulnerability in terms of mortality and love and relationships. And they cannot live in the same world. They want to destroy each other because of what they have wrought on one another. And it's interesting. I feel like we've, we've gone back to uh, Thor Ragnarok a lot in uh, the early parts of this discussion because I do think it's the MCU movie where we get actually the most insight into... Uh, the sort of inner workings of Bruce Banner and the Hulk's minds. We spend the most time with the Hulk in that movie, actually. 
but we learn that they don't like each other. Yeah, they hate each other. Yeah, we learn that... Don't you mention puny banner in front of the Hulk. There's a total disdain for the other guy, which we suspected in Banner, because Banner could articulate to us that he did not want to transform into the Hulk. But even the Hulk is like, I'm a person. I am someone who has found a place where I feel at home, and I am loved and I am venerated. It may not be pure, like all-consuming individual or personal love, but there is an entire community of people here on Sakaar who think I'm the greatest. Why would I want to go back to being that self-pitying, just silly, puny banner? Why would I want to do that? So I think there's definitely a... uh, something that we have seen the MCU absorb from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But I also want to call out what happens at the end of the novel uh, with relationship to the Incredible Hulk movie starring Edward Norton. In The Incredible Hulk, Banner retreats and attempts suicide in Alaska. He tries to put a bullet in his mouth and the Hulk spits it out. It's a pretty disturbing sequence. But... Mary Shelley's Frankenstein uh, is framed by a a frame narrative that follows a captain who is on an expedition to the North Pole. And the captain finds Victor Frankenstein there. Victor Frankenstein is in pursuit of his creature, and they want to destroy each other. Victor ends up dying of hypothermia, and the creature comes to him and weeps over his body. And the captain is trying to decide whether he wants to keep going for his glory, even though Victor Frankenstein's last words to him were, don't be ambitious, don't reach for the stars, just try to live a peaceful and calm life. And he sees the creature weeping over Victor Frankenstein's body and says, what do you have to cry about? You're the one who's the cause of all of this pain. And the creature says, this guy made me. And then he lumbers off into the darkness and vows to kill himself. In their final moments together, the creature laments the fact that their relationship was so, so painful between them and says, I wish, you know, we didn't have to destroy one another, but we did. So I'm going to go take my own life. So I think we get a few references there in the icy terrain, in the references to suicide, in the inability for these two halves of one whole to come together. You know, I didn't know going into this that Frankenstein was an inspiration for the Hulk. I knew Jekyll and Hyde was. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I surmised that there's an echo of, of Heracles reminiscent in the, the, the Hulk as a character. The thing that I find most interesting, now most obvious, one, the Hulk kind of looks a little like Frankenstein in yeah, the way sure. he's drawn. Yeah. And in the way we see him in movies, you know, he's got that sort of Frankenstein haircut and he, he walks with a sort of like apish brutishness that, that you see in Frankenstein. And the fact that the book of Frankenstein, which I've putting myself on blast, have never read, ends almost the way the only solo Hulk movie we got ends is really amazing. I mean, the, the parallels there couldn't be clearer that the Hulk is Banner's creation. 
Yeah. He made the Hulk by exposing himself to the gamma radiations. Now, depending upon what origin story, sometimes it's an accident. Uh, sometimes he was trying to, in the MCU, he's trying to replicate the, the super, super serum, serum. Yeah. which is not usually how it is in the comics. It's just a like freak accident most of the time. But if we take the MCU as the character we're discovering, Banner creates this monster in the hubris and in the overzealous mad scientist-esque. There's a part in Age of Ultron where Tony Stark looks at Bruce Banner and says, hey man, we're mad scientists. As they created Ultron, moving right ahead and creating vision. Yeah. And there is a part of Banner that can't resist the call to create dangerous and powerful science and to do it without fully thinking through the ethical, moral, and philosophical implications that directly caused the phenomenon of the Hulk and put these two creatures living in one body at per- like permanent odds until we get to Endgame. Yes. Which we will talk about Professor Hulk, but let's shelve that. Absolutely. So to to move on from Frankenstein, the important thing about the influence from Jekyll and Hyde, or the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is written later in the 19th century, like 1880s. uh, The important thing to note about this is we get sort of on the literal level a parallel Uh, in Jekyll and Hyde because it's two distinct personas that share a body. One that is an accomplished and distinguished uh, Victorian gentleman who seems to be morally upstanding and one who is uh, violent and cruel and sneaky. And sort of interesting, like, uh, the place where Jekyll and Hyde deals in opposites to the Incredible Hulk is that Dr. Jekyll is described as a very big, broad, commanding presence, and Hyde, who is the evil character who kills people, who like gets joy out of hurting people, is smaller and younger and a little bit slimier. He's just a, it's a very different um, sort of physicalization of this uh, dual persona. But the transformation is brought about not because Dr. Jekyll was experimenting with something and brought out something supernatural. The important thing here is that Hyde was always a part of Dr. Jekyll. Dr. Jekyll, the upstanding, moral, Victorian gentleman, always felt that he had something inside him that was dark and needed to be hidden. So he repressed that part of himself. Dr. Jekyll creates a potion that helps him to hide his hide. It helps him to mask the fact that he has sort of sexual deviant desires or he has uh, more impulsive things that he wants to do and he uses science to mask those things. But because he is trying to do this, because he is trying to hide a part of himself that that should be expressed productively, that comes out in violent outbursts when Mr. Hyde comes out and kills people. So that's what I want to take forward into understanding how we integrate that into the Bruce Banner Incredible Hulk relationship. Great. The so, Hulk was always there. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yep. There was a Hulk living in Bruce Banner the entire time. Yes. So let's 
So with that inspiration, I'd like to transition into the source of the Hulk's strength. Yes. And it's emotional in its source. It's anger. When Bruce Banner feels anger, he transforms into anger incarnate into the Incredible Hulk and then gets his superpowers. Rage is the fuel of the fire to this character, and we can't do justice to the Incredible Hulk without talking about anger itself. So let's talk a little bit about the psychology of anger and how we see this in the character Bruce Banner. I love it. Let's do it. And similar to Jekyll and Hyde is that there was always a Hyde. There was always a Hulk. And I think that's one of the major lessons that we're going to take after this discussion is that we have a Hulk in all of us and we must recognize that Hulk in us and we must bring it to balance. We must become Professor Hulks. Nice. So psychology of anger is interesting. It's relatively new from what I can tell. It Psychology itself is a newer discipline. It was founded by a great friend of our podcast, Sigmund Freud, who didn't have too much to say about anger from what I found. But anger is definitely very much in psychology today. And the reason anger is in psychology today, especially in America, is America has an anger problem. Legitimately, rage is an issue in our culture that permeates us and that is pervasive and gets us to do fucking awful things. Turn on the TV for a minute and you are either going to see the results of rage or you're going to feel the rage. Yeah. One or the other. And I think it behooves us to understand a little bit about anger. Full disclaimer here, I'm not a clinical psychologist and nor is Laurel. Me neither, yeah. So this is all going to be filtered from the layman's perspective. What I found about anger is that anger is generally characterized as a secondary emotion or sometimes even as a substitute emotion. So what do I mean by that? It is secondhand in the respect that anger is a response to pain or unpleasantness. One feels pain or unpleasantness. That pain and unpleasantness can be literal. It can be psychological. It could be theoretical. But you have this experience, and because of this experience, you feel anger. Easiest example that I think we've all felt, if you've ever driven a car, someone cuts you off. You feel a sense of vulnerability because you almost got into a car accident and collided with this other person. This other person was in the wrong in that they caused this vulnerable feeling. And instead of you saying, hey, I have crippling anxiety because driving a car is inherently dangerous, you say, fuck that person. And you get angry. You get angry. And that's how you deal with that pain. And it's the secondary emotion. It also, anger shifts the focus away from the self to the other. So you have the hurt and you felt the hurt and the people that have wronged you should be punished. It gives you a sense of self-righteousness. It gives you a sense of moral purpose and clarity. So when you feel anger, you feel right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. You feel in the right. I was wronged by this And because I was wrong by this, I'm angered at it. And whether or not that anger is justified depends upon societal norms. Because if you feel that anger and you act, you might get judged by a group of 12 peers and be sent to jail. 
because of that anger, because they've judged that action wrong, you might be given a medal of honor because they have judged that action as morally correct. So whether or not that anger is justifiable or correct, it depends upon what societal norms and rules it does or does not break or does reinforce or does not reinforce. So we feel a sense of moral righteousness when someone cuts us off. So I beat my horn and flip them the bird and I move on. But if I cut that person off and take a golf club out of the trunk of my car and smash their windshield, I'm going to jail. Yeah. Anger is not necessarily bad, right? So anger is actually can be very constructive and it can be very helpful. If your ego can't handle the pain that it's feeling, whether that pain is literal or psychological, going to anger is a way that we psychically protect our ego from the pain because it's easier to feel anger than it is to feel hurt. You know, so I'd rather be mad than pain in pain. So I feel anger, right? There's also a sense that like when you have cultivated a healthy relationship to your anger, you can recognize that it is a signal of a deeper emotion, right? So while it may in some cases be safer for your psyche to go to anger instead of a a deep sense of vulnerability, if you're in a relationship and you find an anger with the person, you might learn to recognize that anger as a signal of a deeper sense of insecurity about the relationship or something like that. It can help you to point out when things are wrong and give you the tools that you need to solve the problem. Or you might see a politician do something that hurts people. And so you get mad. So you organize a group and you start knocking on doors and you get the politician out of office. You know, speaking for myself as a young man who dealt with some anger issues, I put those on a drum set and I supplemented the anger that I felt and channeled it into music and made great music. So anger can be an inspiration for art. It's not necessarily bad. No. However, when you're only feeling anger and you're not feeling the underlining emotion, that's where, from what I've been reading, where it gets dangerous. Anger can also be addictive. I read that anger does two things to you, neurochemically speaking. One, it releases a hormone that literally blocks pain receptors. When you're angry, you feel less pain. This is true for both emotional and physical pain. That's why in a fit of rage, if you punch a wall, you might punch right through it and break a knuckle and not feel it for the next 30 minutes because your brain is shutting down the pain receptors. And two, it releases a hormone that gives joy. These two things, the blocking of pain and the releasing of joy can make anger addictive. It can make people want to feel anger over feeling other emotions. And because you're feeling the anger and you're using the anger to push down the other emotions, then you get out of balance and then you get Hulk. And Hulk is the manifestation of only able to feel rage. That's the only emotion the Hulk can feel. That's the only emotion the Hulk can address. And that is why the Hulk represents a much more complicated and dangerous hero. I think that's, yeah, that's great. Um, I read an article 
leading up to this called The Incredible Hulk and Emotional Literacy. Uh, It's by Jennifer Mendoza Sayers in a book called Using Superheroes in Counseling and Play Therapy. I highly recommend the book. It's very interesting from the, the lens of clinical psychology. But she says, quote, in a clinical context, the Incredible Hulk syndrome refers to a splitting off of opposing emotional tendencies in attempts to reconcile and integrate them into personality. Successful resolution of this syndrome results results in adaptive emotional expression, particularly of anger, and as described in this chapter, greater emotional literacy, end quote. What she was exploring in writing this essay was how our relationship to anger as an emotion, as a signal or as a secondary emotion, can, in certain cases, lead us to underdevelop a skill to integrate our emotions into our personality. So she describes four styles of anger that are present in what is actually clinically called a Hulk syndrome. Those being masked anger, like we see with Bruce Banner. He says to us in the Avengers that he is always angry right before he transforms into the Hulk. And that's something we can observe in him going forward, is that there is always an anger present within Bruce Banner that he is hiding from us, just like Dr. Jekyll. Then there's explosive anger, as illustrated by the Hulk, which means when we do express our anger, it comes out in uncontrolled bursts, in violence, in things that we would never do if we were in control of our emotions. In chronic anger, which is the tension between Banner and the Hulk, because it's a repeated pattern of repression and explosion, so it continues to repeat itself. And then in healthy anger, which is Banner's goal, and arguably what he achieves when he becomes Professor Hulk, it is a balance between our personalities as we perceive them, and our emotions, including anger, which can be a really explosive emotion if we allow it to take control of us. What Sayers argues here is that if we recognize anger as a valid emotional signal, it can be really productive and empowering. It can lead us to do that knocking on doors and getting that politician out of office. It gives us uh, a feeling of agency over ourselves and over our emotions. But explosive, uncontrolled rage, like when the Hulk comes out out of nowhere, is just providing us the illusion of power. While we feel like we may be doing something productive by punching our enemies or destroying a building, what we're actually doing is just destroying. We're destroying people that we love, people that we don't know, we're being destructive to ourselves. We're Hercules waking up after a fit of rage and realizing that we have hurt the people that we love the most. So what this psychologist is trying to do by using the Incredible Hulk as an example in clinical psychology and in therapy with children and adults alike is to realize that our anger is us. It's in us and it's ourselves. The Hulk or Banner constantly says, you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And that catchphrase signals to us that his anger is not his own, right? If we say that, then it says our anger is not our own. But our journey is toward recognizing that our anger is part of us, that it is something that if we accept it and if we 
learn to understand it and we learn to comprehend it and give it the space that it deserves, then it can be a really useful tool. It can be a really useful part of ourselves that allows us to strengthen our other emotions, that allows us to recognize our other emotions that it may be signaling. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Professor Hulk in Endgame. Absolutely. As the sort of conclusion to our discussion on the Hulk, um, because I think that is where we see exactly what you're talking about, where anger is a part of who we are and we will feel anger and we should, and sometimes we have to, but when it is explosive anger, it's dangerous. So I read a really interesting article called what your anger may be hiding published in psychology today in 2008 by a professor by the name of Leon Seltzer. And I want to read this quick quote. It's short. Yeah, go for it. In effect, whether individuals are confronted with physical or psychological pain, or the threat of pain, the internal activation of anger of anger response will precipitate the release of a chemical expressly designed to numb it. This is why I've long viewed anger as a double-edged sword, terribly detrimental to relationships, but nonetheless crucial in enabling many vulnerable people to emotionally survive in them. So we see a few things in Endgame, some specific pieces that I want to pull out. One, when we first meet Professor Hulk in the diner, he discusses that he used to think of Hulk as the disease. But what if Hulk was the cure? This to me is symbolic of saying instead of fighting the anger, instead of looking at the anger as something outside of me, instead of looking at the Hulk as another, the Hulk is what has enabled me to survive to this point. Without the Hulk, I would have died. I would have died from the gamma radiation. I would have died under the threat of the supervillains I've had to beat. I would not have survived without the Hulk. Hulk, thank you for getting me here. You were the cure. But now that I am here, I need to reconcile and not just be shielded underneath the rage. Two, in Endgame, major spoiler, Black Widow gives her life for the Soul Stone so that they can get the Soul Stone to undo the snap. And in that, we see a healthy expression of rage from Bruce Banner, Professor Hulk, when they're sitting around at the dock and he picks up a bench and throws it into the lake. That's in a time where he can't allow himself to fully feel the hate and pain, and sadness. There's one person in the MCU he actually loved and wanted a relationship with but couldn't because it's just too dangerous, it's too complex, there was too much going on. And when he loses her, instead of allowing that to cripple him, he throws a bench. And yeah, it's not good to throw a bench. No one should do that. But for the Hulk, he could destroy a city. Instead, he throws a bench. He lets the anger flow over him. And what do we see at the end of the movie after another major spoiler wall, Tony Stark's funeral? He goes, man, I miss her. He allows himself to actually reconcile with that emotion. And he doesn't express it in just terms of rage. He says, I miss the woman I love. I think that's beautiful. I really appreciate you bringing uh, that up because I, I hadn't even thought of that. But as a, an expression of a character who's learning to manage 
his relationship to all of his emotions. I think that's wonderful. And I think the underlining emotion Banner is masking in the Hulk is vulnerability. It's his fear that he's not good enough. He's not strong enough. He is not capable enough. He's not worthy of love or respect or admiration. He has all of these anxieties that make him become a mad scientist, that make him become the Hulk. And the Hulk protects him from all of these things. And for a brief while in the MCU, it had to, because Branner wouldn't have been able to do it without the Hulk. But once he gets to the point where, hey, we lost the Infinity War, uh, we need to reconcile and the Hulk finally comes into balance with Banner, and we see Professor Hulk, and we see a scientist who can help discover time travel, and someone strong enough to wield the Infinity Gauntlet, and someone able to go to battle against uh, the armies of Thanos. We see the Hulk and Banner in unity, and that is fucking awesome. That is why I love the Hulk. And how often, for how long, for how many movies did we see Bruce Banner unwilling to accept love? Did we see him reject advances of love when they were in his face, when they were kissing him, when they were saying, let's run away together? And then as soon as he becomes the Hulk and stays the Hulk for two years while he's on Sakaar, he's like, yeah, give me all of the love. As soon as he's able to combine himself with what he perceives as his dangerous, angry self, he's able to say that love was actually important to me. And he's able to accept not only romantic love, but love from his surrogate family in the Avengers, just like Natasha was feeling at the beginning of Avengers Endgame. So we see a character who is reconciling with what they think are their worst impulses, but actually are giving him access to things that are good, like love. It's Victor Frankenstein reconciling with the creature. The creature just wants to be loved. Although he may have destructive tendencies, that's what he wants. And that's the same for Banner and Hulk. As you are closing yourself off from deep and powerful and aggressive emotions like anger, you're also closing yourself off from having a person accept every single part of you. And that's fucking love. Yeah, and it may be easier for you at a time to feel rage rather than feeling the underlining emotion. And that's okay. That's not necessarily weakness. And that may be a form of strength. And you may have to feel anger but eventually you have to also feel the underlining emotion, the pain that caused the anger. And eventually you've got to find your Professor Hulk. And until next time. Pod smash. Smash. And be and kind. Be kind.